I am very grateful that I just had some time off uh, for vacation. So thank you for letting me have vacation. And I'm grateful for Bill Cayley and Kevin Keppen who uh, filled in for me. And I want to introduce uh, our speaker today, Grant Brown. Uh, for some of you, you maybe haven't met Grant yet. Grant and Fern moved here last summer um, and uh, have become a part of the bridge. We're, we're really grateful to have them. Grant has been uh, a pastor, a missionary, and a hospital chaplain. So he has a, a lot of experience in ministry. So Grant, we're delighted you're here. Please come and uh, bring your message. Thank you, Jerry. It's a privilege to stand before you this morning and to present the Word of God, and I thank you for asking, Jerry. We've uh, moved here in the summer, and uh, we're just settling in to our new place in Altoona, and we're glad to be in Eau Claire. The mission of this church is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. If fully devoted and followers means anything, it means following Jesus. Oh, yes, the kids can go. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times when I was pastoring a church, I forgot to do that. And so the pattern's holding true. So if fully devoted and Followers means anything at all. It means following Jesus in crisis. It means following him in difficulty, following him in adversity, sometimes following him in the dark. We just sang scars and struggles on the way, but with joy, my heart can say, you've never left me alone. God has always been faithful. So this morning, it's instructive for us to look into the scriptures and see how this played out in the lives of three young men who lived in the 7th century and the early part of the 6th century B.C. It's in the book of Daniel. If you grew up in the church and reading Bible stories, you're familiar with this story. It's the story of the three young men in the fiery furnace. If you didn't, let me remind you, this is a true story. Nebuchadnezzar is a historically verifiable character. There's a historical exile of the Jews from Jerusalem into Babylon. And this story this morning starts off with the first of three captivities that took place. Let's bow before the Lord and ask him to direct our thinking and my words and your hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that it tells us how we should live. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit you teach us, using your word, to impress upon our hearts your truth. Let this story this morning change our lives. Help us to see the depth of commitment that you ask for when you say, follow me. Help us to become this morning more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and we ask it in his name. Amen. The year is 605 B.C., and God had just allowed Nebuchadnezzar, the soon-to-be king of Babylon, to lead his armies into Jerusalem and to take away some of the gold vessels from the temple and some of the upper class of Jerusalem. 
He marched them north from Jerusalem to Aleppo in present-day Syria, and then they followed the route of the Euphrates River south and east to Babylon. The king ordered his chief of staff to pick out the best and the brightest of the captives and enroll them in a three-year course of study where they were taught the wisdom and the learning of the Chaldeans to train them as civil servants in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 1. Their names were Daniel, some of them. Their names were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In due time, these young men graduated with distinction and high honors from the Civil Service Institute of Babylon. I made that up. At the same time, they demonstrated obedience and courageous faithfulness to God. And courageous faithfulness is a term, a phrase I'd like you to remember this morning. I'd like you to walk out of here with the term courageous faithfulness ringing in your ears. In chapter 1, they show courageous faithfulness in regard to food and drink offered to idols. They did, did not partake of that, and the story of how that played out is an interesting story in itself. In chapter 2, they show courageous faithfulness in regard to the king's dream and its interpretation. And as a result, at the end of chapter 2, they're promoted to positions of high honor and responsibility in Nebuchadnezzar's civil service. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a test of religious loyalty. He's conquered many diverse tribes and nations, and the city of Babylon is now home to many gods and religious systems. Nebuchadnezzar sees this as a threat to a united kingdom, and so valuing loyalty above all else, he wants to direct the loyalty of his subjects to a single object of worship. He decides to homogenize the religion of his kingdom, and to do so, he sets up an image that's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide in the plain of Dura. And he commissions the Royal Babylonian Symphony to play worship music. And when the assembled crowd hears the music, they are to bow down in worship to this image. And this, in doing so, will have overtones of worship to Nebuchadnezzar himself. We're going to read Daniel chapter 3. I want to read the whole chapter because it all fits together. It'll take about five minutes, so buckle up. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps and prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Notice there's no Joe Plummer here. These are all civil servants, and they come from many provinces. Far away, they come for this unifying worship experience. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing 
furnace. So the options are pretty clear. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers, these would be wise men of Babylon, perhaps descendants of these guys came west to follow the star that announced the birth of Jesus six centuries later. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, I'm going to give you a second chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will deliver you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, we don't have to explain ourselves. Our decision's already made. We don't have to talk anymore about this. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But now here's the hinge the whole story swings on right now. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, turbans, Trousers and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. 
They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So eyewitness testimony to their survival without the smell of fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be burned, turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Excuse me. So to summarize, everybody bows down, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The native Chaldeans, full of resentment toward the Jews from still smarting from the defeat in chapter 2, where Daniel had revealed to him the king's dream and its interpretation, they point out to the king that these guys have not bowed down, and so he offers them a second chance. Let's read 15 through 18 of the chapter. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harps, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? See, Nebuchadnezzar's already got, got delusions of grandeur here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up, even if not. So now the question is, how do you get courageous faith like that? How does God develop courageous faith like that in his children? Faith that gave them the courage to look the leader of the most powerful nation in the world in the eye and say, no. Faith that lets them say with courage, our God is able to deliver us from your hand, but even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold which you have set up. I'll suggest that there are at least four factors that God used to develop these young men into courageous, faithful followers of himself. Factor number one, they knew and practiced God's word. These were young men who practiced James 22 before James ever wrote it. James says in one, chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but practice it. Do what it says. Apparently, merely listening to the word and not practicing it is self-deceptive. We go away merely listening to the word with more than we think we really have, with thinking we have more than we really have. It's not until we start to practice the word that it becomes alive in our lives 
that it becomes alive in our hearts. So these young men practiced James 21, 22 before he ever wrote it. They knew the Old Testament. They didn't have it all, but they had a lot. They certainly had the five books of Moses. They certainly had Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, we read, You shall have no other gods before me. That rules out right away, bowing down to an image or an obelisk or some sort of symbol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. No other gods before me. I'm the one, the only, the true God. I'm the one who made all things. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. I'm the one who carried you through the desert. I'm the one who gave you the city of Jerusalem and the land of Palestine. You're to have no other gods before me. And you're not to make yourself any idol of me. You don't know what I look like. You can't possibly make a graven image or a, a carved idol that reflects my likeness. My likeness is beyond anything you can imagine. And you are not to try to reduce me to an image of your own making that will subvert your worship and take it away from me. You're not to make a graven image. There again, that rules out bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. You will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You don't speak of me casually. You don't speak of me irreverently. You don't tack my name onto every exclamation of surprise or shock or sorrow that you come across in life. You don't attach God to every little sentence of your day. The name of God is to be revered. The name of God is to be not used meaninglessly or casually. Our day and culture is thrown around as if it meant nothing. That's not to characterize, not to be part of the lives of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You're to keep the Sabbath day holy. There again, God is impressing upon his people the importance of a day for rest, a day for worship. So they knew the word of God and they practiced it, and when confronted with the furnace or life, they realized that they could lose their lives by disobeying the king, but they could lose their everlasting souls by disobeying God. They lived according to Matthew 10, 28, before Jesus ever spoke it, when he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So factor number one is, they knew God's word and they practiced it. They'd been taught, they learned, and they put it into their lives. Factor number two is they had resolved this matter ahead of time. They had thought through the implications of living godly in a godless world, and they had come to this decision 
before the situation ever arose. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, they said. Because they had already thought out what their response would be in a situation like this. They'd done this before in chapter 1, before the temptation ever arose regarding the king's food and drink. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and wine. And these three young men were in on that decision. They did not need time to think. Now, Daniel and his three friends had recognized in advance that it could cost them to live according to God's word in a godless culture. And so they were prepared. This is so necessary for all of us today. So necessary. We never know when a test is going to come. We never know how severe the test is going to be, but we're confronted with choices day in and day out in which we have to apply biblical principles to life. It's especially important for young people and those young in the faith. The time to decide to live godly in an ungodly world is now, not when the pornographic images flicker across the screen, not when the hateful social media posts appear on your page, not when the violent video games make light of bloodshed and violence and human life, not when the opportunity for sexual impurity arises, not when the false escape of drugs or alcohol is before you. We must resolve in advance to live godly in a godless world and not to defile ourselves with the things the world worships and finds important. Factor number one, they knew the word of God and they practiced it. Factor number two, they resolved this issue ahead of time. Factor number three, they held to a God-fearing worldview where they thought in terms of even if. You know, they could have thought in terms of what if. That's what so many people do today. And we ourselves are prone to thinking in terms of what if. What if Nebuchadnezzar is really serious? What if he does throw us in the furnace? What if we burn up? We'll burn to a cinder in a matter of seconds. What if we die? But they didn't embrace that type of thinking. They didn't think in terms of what if. Instead, they thought a courageous, they followed a courageous thought pattern of even if. Courageous faithfulness teaches us to think in terms of even if rather than what if. Even if God chose not to rescue them, they were not going to bow down to the king's image. Even if they didn't know what was going to happen, they knew God was with them and they'd be okay. Even if they had died in the furnace, they would have been delivered from the king's hand, either life or death. Even if they could not see the outcome by faith, they were simply going to follow for us today, courageous faithfulness leads us to reject what-if thinking. It's a question that only brings out fear and instead embrace even-if thinking. You see how what-if thinking leads to fear? What if I suffer financial reversal? <gasps> what if my relationship falls apart? <gasps> what if the medical tests come back with bad news? <sighs> what if I end up alone in my old age? What if I lose my job? What if I outlive my money? On the other hand, even if thinking 
demonstrates faith because it allows for any eventuality. We know that God will do all things well. So even if my money runs out, God, who has always been faithful, will provide. Even if my loved one gets cancer, God will take care of us and we'll be okay. Even if I lose my job, God is not limited to my job, I'll be okay. Even if I die alone, God will be with me. He'll be my comfort. I'll be okay. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Even if my friends unfriend me, God still loves me, and I'll be okay. Put your worst nightmare behind what if, and you come away afraid, because what if is a question to which there's no good answer. On the other hand, even if is a declaration that implies previous resolve, confidence in a greater authority than the world can muster. These three young men had learned to think in terms of even if, and therefore their decision was already made. We who name the name of Jesus don't have to think in terms of what if. We can think like the three young men did in terms of even if. They were saying that even if death was God's means of deliverance, they trusted completely in him and were okay. They knew the word, they practiced it. They resolved the matter ahead of time. They thought in terms of even if rather than what if. And factor number four, leading to courageous faithfulness on the part of the children of God. This was not their first big test. They'd been tested before. God doesn't test us with life or death tests right out of the gate. He, he tends to build up our tests and the severity of them. He starts us off with little tests, with disappointments, perhaps with failures, things that prove our faith, but at the same time increase it. And God knows exactly how to do that. These guys had been tested in the fall of Jerusalem as they had witnessed the robbing of and desecration of the temple, and they'd been dragged away from everything that was familiar and near and dear to them. They were tested when they had to march 800 miles to a strange country. They were tested by being subject to a hostile king who was determined to rebrand them and to eradicate their national distinctive as God's chosen people. They were tested in the matter of the king's food and drink in chapter 1, tested in the matter of the king's dream and its interpretation in chapter 2. This was not their first big test. They were veterans of testing. Each test strengthened their trust and prepared them for the next one. You see, God designs our tests for us. He assigns tests to individuals. He's a God who loves individual people. He trains and develops and disciplines individual people according to their needs. He never tests us to destroy us, only to prove us and to strengthen us. Each test builds on the previous test and prepares us for the next until we come to our final test, our dying time. When by faith we see him as the supremely faithful one, the one who is able 
to keep us from falling. Small wonder that Paul in prison could say, I'm not ashamed of being in prison or of being persecuted. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have committed to him against that day. What had, God, what had Paul committed to God against that day? Well, his everlasting soul, to keep his everlasting soul safe and take him safely home, what was that day? It's the day of judgment. Paul knew and was confident that when he stood before God, God would have tested him and proven him and taken him, brought him safely home. We may be tested by many things we can't foresee. Perhaps we will face persecution. We don't know what the future holds in our country. Our country seems to me to be on a downward moral slide. And we don't know how long it will be before public opinion turns against Christians, against fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, because the one thing that's a threat to secularism is the true believer. Perhaps we will face persecution in which we are called upon to choose between our loyalty to God and our physical life. Perhaps not, but we need to prepare now. Learning and knowing the Word of God, determining in advance how we will respond, practicing even if thinking rather than what if thinking, and by seeing our tests, our adversities, our trials as sent by God, rejoicing in them because they are purposeful, they are significant, they are meaningful. And for us who live today, the New Testament writers have instructions on how to respond to testing. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes at the end of verse 2, we exult or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. It's an unexpected word to use when Paul says rejoice in suffering. I'd like to avoid pain. I'd like to avoid persecution. I'd like to avoid suffering. I like peace. Paul says we rejoice in our suffering. James says, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There it is again. Response to testing of joy and rejoicing. 1 Peter 4. Verses 12 and 13, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Have you noticed when the New Testament writers talk about being called upon to suffer, a curious word comes out. Invariably, they mention joy, rejoice, and it's the word rejoice. Most of us would prefer to avoid pain. 
But the New Testament writers have an eternal perspective. So they say, rejoice, because they see suffering in this life as the means to glory. They say, they see suffering in this life as the means to character, the means to maturity. And so they say, rejoice. Do you think they practiced what they preached? Or were these just empty words? These are not throwaway words. Let's look at the experience of the apostles. Acts chapter 5, 41. The apostles, after a beating, they'd been imprisoned, and then an angel had let them out of prison. They'd gone back to teaching in the temple. They, they were rearrested. They were beaten. And they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer. Suffering the badge of worthiness in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes in verses 8 through 10, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast more gladly. See joy coming through there? I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. If we're weak, it causes a watching world. If we're weak and persecuted, it causes a watching world to ask why. Why do they hold on to their faith? Because through the power of Christ, Jesus is making himself known to a watching world through our persecution. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 34, through 34. Remember those earlier days after you received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood by those, you stood side by side with those who were so troubled or treated. And here's the Here's the key. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Wow. Joyfully accepted the corrupt official who took my property and put his name on the deed. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of my property by the state who simply wanted to persecute me. Decided that Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ weren't worthy of owning property, and so we'll take it away. I don't know what the situation was, but they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So in conclusion, what test is God entrusting to you today? Because he does. He trusts us with tests. He trusted Job with his tests. He trusts us with tests. Is it a test of sickness or pain? Chronic pain can be a debilitating thing and can cause us to question God. Is it a test of sorrow, grief, or loss? A test that can cause us to question God rather than engage in even if thinking? Is it a test of financial re reversal, a test of purity versus impurity? 
a test of affluence, plenty, prosperity, and ease. A wealthy man once said to me, when God really wants to test a man, he gives him a lot of money. Maybe you're blessed by God. That can be a test as to how you view God's good gifts to you and the abundance with which he has blessed you. You are responsible to live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ even when you have a lot. These tests are meant to grow us and to strengthen us, not to defeat us. Our three friends from Daniel 3 teach us to know the Word of God and practice it, to decide in advance our response to trial, to think in terms of even if, to accept the tests God gives, trusting, recognizing they are not random, they are not meaningless, they have purpose, they have meaning, and they are reason to rejoice. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in our lives that brings testing, whether it's testing in terms of loss or testing in terms of gain. We ask that you would help us to be faithful, courageously faithful in a world moving ever further and further away from yourself. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.